The legends are true. But overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. Assalamu alaikum and welcome to Blogging Theology. Today we're pleased to speak to Brother Michael Abraham. Assalamu alaikum, Echi Michael. How are you? Wa alaikum assalam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. Alhamdulillah, I'm doing very well, brother. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Thank you for, for being here. Michael Abraham is a public school teacher and educational consultant in the United States of America. In 13 years of teaching, he has taught elementary school for six years and seven years of middle and high school. He also taught internationally in Saudi Arabia for three years. In the U.S., he has worked as an instructional coach and led professional development and school turnaround initiatives at inner-city schools in the city of Minneapolis, Minnesota. But Michael's best known in the field of education for having created a professional development program for kindergarten to grade 12 educators entitled Engaging Muslim Students in Public Schools, and for also authoring a book by the same name. And a link to the book can be found in the description box below. In the past six years, over 2,000 educators in the United States have taken his program across 15 states and 150 school districts and organizations. He's also conducted this training at Hamlin University in St. Paul, Minnesota, Washington University in Seattle, and Ohio State University in Columbus, Ohio. Michael holds a bachelor's degree in, in political science from the University of Minnesota, a master's degree in education from Hamlin University, as well as teaching licenses in teaching English as a second language and also in communication arts. Michael also runs a YouTube channel called Abraham Education, where Muslim parents, teachers, and youth mentors can find a very valuable free course in the playlists entitled Parenting Skills Muslims Need. Today, Michael is going to speak to us about the importance of and ways to empower our Muslim children in public schools. Michael, whenever you're ready, please enlighten us. And bismillah, alhamdulillah, wa salatu wa salamu ala rasulillah. Salamu alaikum, peace be upon you, brother, peace be upon everyone out there. Thank you so much for having me, first of all. I'm really uh, humbled. It's a pleasure to be on this channel. It's a pleasure to be with you, brother, um, and all the work that you've done. For the Muslims over the years, you know, I know a lot of your work has concerned, you know, the, the East-West collision with Muslims, you know, be, being in the Western world and, and their collision with environment, being in environments that are controlled by Westerners and controlled by non-Muslims. And, you know, this issue of Muslim students in public schools in the West, in America, is particular to me, it really gets at the heart of such issues because I'm not sure there is a context where it's more frequent that Muslim youth especially are forced into relationships with non-Muslims outside, uh, other than public schools. And of course, we have a very young population of people worldwide amongst Muslims, same in the West, and the more, majority of our community is actually children. And, you know, when we talk about the public school system, it's very triggering for Muslims, you know, the the, the, the phrase public schools floods the Muslims with anxiety, you know, for, 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 for numerous reasons. 
And there's certainly an array of concerns with the public school system and the assimilation anxiety that the community experiences with their kids is, is very real, real. And it's certainly not unwarranted, you know, but, but when I talk about this, you know, I actually prefer to take a step back from, from that anxious kind of state that we get in with this and, and all the types of problems that are always pointed to. I prefer to, st- to step away from that because with the extensive experience that I've had in public schools in America, I know that there's lots of opportunity for us in it. There's lots of opportunity for us, not just concerning our children, but really concerning societal-wide issues that we have as Muslims living in the West. And empowering our students, empowering our families, and advocating for our families and kids in the public school system. It's something that we have to do, certainly number one, just to save our children from the hellfire, as Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala commands us to do. But, you know, also in a way really to test the extent to which we can really live out being Muslims in Western society, in my opinion. The reality is that when you live in Western society, it's hard being a Muslim. It is. It's hard practicing Islam, even the most basic things. It's an uphill battle, just the most basic things. And the reality for most people... Most people are not, most people don't have the personality and they don't have the emotional fortitude to constantly be fighting an uphill battle in society. It's the rare person who can do that. It's not, it's not the average person. So it's well known. We talk about it a lot as Muslims, you know, compromising on our religious practice is something that constantly goes on for Muslims in the West. And we get caught up, you know, tit for tatting amongst ourselves over who's to blame for it, um, over where that's okay and where that's not okay, and, and, and all this type of stuff. And, you know, me personally, I, I'm not really interested in those types of discussions. I'm not. I, I'm Because to me, those discussions, it's always just really spinning a hamster wheel. If we can't get to the point where we can advance the education about Islam in the society, amongst the people who control the environments that we are in. And that's the reality of living in the West. The the control that the environments that Muslims have control over are very, very limited. The, the masajid and home. And even in some ways, there might be limits on those types of things. And certainly the outside influences all come in there. But we spend most of our time out in public venues, in public school systems, in professional settings, where the environment is not controlled by Muslims. It's controlled by non-Muslims. In professional settings, the agenda of how you create a welcoming environment or whatever type of environment in professional settings, that is downstream from the education system. So the only way that we'll ever get to a point as Muslims where we can really externalize ourselves as Muslims in the West, talk about the authentic things to our hearts and minds as it relates to being Muslim, not have to compromise, not always have to fight uphill with our religious practice, we'll never get to that point if we cannot comprehensively and productively advance the society's education about Islam. That, that's what it comes down to. And and our children being in the public education system, this is where it has to begin. Number one, because that's where we are, ha- you know, that, that's where the, that relationship is first experimented with, number one. And number two, because we have a... Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. 
that crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Young po- As I said, we have a young population of people for Muslims. The average age of a Muslim worldwide is 23. The average age of an American, for example, is 39. And the Western countries, they have an aging population, as we know. So, you know, the estimates are there's a little bit north of 4 million uh, Muslims in America. Over 2 million of those of those people would be K through 12 aged people. And if you look at more advanced data, which I have cataloged in my book from uh, uh, the United States Community Survey, which is done during the United States Census, and certainly school enrollment data that where students are identified by race and by home language and this type of thing. It becomes very apparent that the majority of our population is young people in schools. Now, what we have to understand about that, that gives the Muslim community significant leverage when it comes to the public school system, especially in the United States. School systems differ worldwide from place to place. It's generally the case that Muslims globally think of education as being something very top down and not something that you can influence and something that you just have to be subject to and accept it for what it is and put up with it. And a lot of times that type of mentality might be brought into our condition in America. But the reality is American education is not that way. American education is not that way. The Tenth Amendment of the United States Constitution actually prohibits the federal government in Washington, D.C. from creating a national curriculum for the country. Only the states can do that. Mm. Even at the state level, the culture and system of education is not such that states create like a full-scale curriculum for each school to do. Rather, they create kind of these broad outlines that they call standards. And there's a lot that can be fit into standards. There's a lot of different ways that standards can be interpreted. They tend to be vague in the way that they're written, somewhat for political reasons. But the level at which that curriculum is really set is usually at the school district level, sometimes the individual school level. And even beyond that, the culture of teacher unions in America makes it so that individual teachers in American schools, they actually have a lot of power because the teacher union contracts that they have, it limits their accountability. It limits the extent to which they can be observed by supervisors and principals. And even if they do something that a higher up doesn't like, it gives them great protection in terms of in terms of losing their job. There's usually an elaborate process for that to happen. So a lot of times the biggest determiner of what goes on in a public school classroom in America is the individual discretion of the teacher. Now, this whole thing, it might not be the same other places, but the exciting thing about it, it creates an atmosphere where ground up advocacy is a real opportunity in the United States of America. And as with most things, and I worked in uh, you know, the in Saudi Arabia and the Arabian Gulf, you know, the influence of the American education system upon international education is, is only expanding. And it's expanded a lot over the past 20, 25 years. So creating a new trends or creating or, or affecting the currents of trends in the United States education system is a really big opportunity to not just affect what goes on in the United States, but really worldwide. And as far as advancing the education about Islam itself in the society, we have to use the public education system for that. We spend so much time uh, trying to do dawah on social media. 
we might hold events at Masajid, you know, open house events or something. Uh, we hold Muslims are very good at holding big conferences. They're very sparsely, if at all, attended by non-Muslims. What is the strategy? And I would like to know from other Muslim leaders who are out there, what is the strategy for really advancing comprehensively the education about Islam in the Western world amongst non-Muslims? What, what is our plan for that? Because right now, everything that we're doing, it has limited reach as the reality. We do a lot on social media. There are all different kinds of discussions going on on social media, this and that. That's great. The algorithms limit the reach of our da'wah on social media. No matter how big a following a Muslim personality has, it's mostly Muslims who are following that person. The non-Muslims who are following that person, it is typically someone who has a personal self-interest in learning about Islam. Meaning either they're pursuing Islam out for a curiosity to be about religion, perhaps they are pursuing the truth about God. If they are, inshallah, they will become a Muslim. Could be the opposite of that. I'm sure, I know you know about this. There's some people, they go out and they scout the da'wah and the education that Muslims are doing because they're trying to criticize Islam. They're trying to take Muslims down. They're trying to mischaracterize Islam. So those types of people, they have a self-personal interest in learning about Islam. But the vast majority of people in Western society, they don't have that personal interest. Most of them, their, their lives are simply too comfortable. They're not conditioned to have that interest because they live with a secular mindset for the most part. But if you look at the public education system, there's over 3 million, about 3.4 million licensed public school educators in the United States. It's the most, it's the most professionally licensed occupation that there is. Full 1% of the population of the United States is licensed public school teachers. With all these Muslim kids who are in their classrooms, which is a reality for any public school teacher, certainly in a city in America, and you know, over the past 20 years, it's the case now that really in urban area, you know, any metro area in general, not just the city, but the first, second, third ring suburbs as well, including many different rural areas where there's pockets of Muslims. Those professionals, they don't, they might not have a personal interest in learning about Islam, but they have a very strong professional interest in learning about Islam. And some of the things that I'll get into, that I'm going to get into here, is trying to really make Muslims aware of what is going on in the culture of education that are things that, like anything else, you know, anything that goes on in the West, we can look at it as Muslims and we can set Islam as our criteria for what we assess to be right and wrong or good and bad. And any type of trend, any type of idea, any type of program, we can assess it and say there's some good in it and there's some bad in it because that's how we will usually view things because Islam gives us an, a criteria to judge things by. And, you know, we tend to really look at the things that are bad, but there are some things that have gone on in American education that really open up the opportunity for us to teach people about Islam and that have conditioned educators themselves to be very open-minded about learning about it in this professional way, out of the interest of better serving Muslim students and families, better teaching Muslim kids, and better accommodating our religious practice. And that's what I really want to get into. And when you say we, you have the Muslim parents and their children in mind? 100%. 100%. Now, this is something I appreciate you asking that because, you know, and it's actually not just Muslim um, parents and, and Muslim immigrant parents. It's a general trend amongst immigrant parents in the United States 
it generally has to do with the way that education is typically done in the developing world, that immigrant parents tend not to assert themselves as advocates in the public school system. They actually tend to be very, very supportive of teachers. They will tell their kid, be good, listen and obey the teacher, et cetera. Almost all immigrant communities do that because that tends to be the culture in the developing world and the attitude towards teachers. And again, the education is thought of something that, you know, it's handed down from the Ministry of Education. So it is what it is. We don't influence it. American education is not that way. American education, as I was articulating before, it's local first. So the influence of families, the influence of parents, it's not just something that is expected. It's actually something that is professionally required in education, both by federal law and state laws, but even more so by the evaluation that educational professionals have to undergo. Now, let me um, share my screen here. Sure. And, and I'll get into some things regarding this. So what you're looking at on the screen here, this is uh, an example. This is a real part of a real teacher evaluation rubric from a school district local to here in Minnesota. Why do I have this one pulled out? Recently, I gave kind of a presentation about this in Minnesota and I just asked a random person who registered where they had their kids in school, and I just pulled this this rubric out. I didn't like target this one specifically, but you'll see things in this teacher rubric that pretty much exist in all teacher rubrics nowadays. Now, now what is this rubric used for? It's used to evaluate teachers as professionals when they're when observations are done of them in their teaching in the classrooms by their principal or their supervisor. Also at the end of year when they have exit interviews and this type of thing and professional evaluation. Well, it's like a it's like, performance appraisal. Exactly. Exactly. You know, you know, you have it's any other type of rubric. You have indicators on one side and then, you know, some sort of good to bad spectrum. Almost all of these rubrics, as they exist now in teacher education in the United States, is based on a template rubric put together by an academic in 2013 named Charlotte Danielson. Her template is called the SOEI rubric, the Standards of Effective Instruction Rubric. Because of that template and the other trends in education that have gone on over the past 20 plus years in, in the United States, every single one of these rubrics will mention something about student and family culture and the need for the teacher to know about student and family culture and the need it will always show that a proficient or a distinguished or an exemplary teacher is going to be a teacher who leverages and utilizes student and family culture in the classroom and who honors and respects it. Because in education over the past 20 years, the student population has experienced a huge demographic shift in the United States. The school district I went to, for example, when I graduated in the year 2002, was 92% white kids. Now it's 58% white kids. That's a suburban school district, both urban and suburban school districts, as well as many rural, rural ones. They've experienced that type of demographic shift to where their classrooms are now more diverse. And it is primarily fueled by immigrant children because the year 2000 to 2010 was the largest decade of immigration in the United States, certainly the largest decade of Muslim immigration. And in the places around the United States where we know we have Muslim communities, the public school system, they feel the presence of us more than the broader community because we have so many children. So as a reaction to that demographic shift, schools have kind of known that they really need to emphasize student culture. And at the very least, they need to make it look like they're doing it. Mm. And, you know, th this has created the impetus for teachers to change their practice and to learn about multi multiculturalism, 
uh, as well as racial equity, which I which I will get into. But if you look at this rubric, if you, if you zero in on the distinguished side here, um, it says this is a so this is the highest marking a teacher can get being distinguished in this category. What they will do, the teacher will capitalize on student strengths, academic backgrounds, life experience, and culture and language. And when applies they say, when they say culture that would include well, they'll be inclusive of religion, right? Well, one hundred percent. And this is part of the point because what needs to be pointed out that is that that is especially the case if you are talking about Muslim students, because mm. you can look in any field of academia that analyzes Muslims, historians, sociologists, anthropologists, political scientists, as you like. You will never get away from them saying you cannot understand the culture of Muslim people without understanding their religion because the religion performs the basis of it. You know, one of the earliest things, multiculturalism first started to become a trend in public education in the 1980s. There was an academic, I believe his last name was Hall, if I remember correctly. He created a metaphor that is commonly cited in education circles, that culture is like an iceberg, meaning that there is a lot that you see above the surface but the majority of it, if you look below the surface, below the surface is actually where you see where the majority of the culture actually exists. So the metaphor being that you see things pertaining to cultural diversity, you see different dress, you hear different languages, you taste different food, etc. But the majority of culture, it's actually moral psychological things that you don't necessarily see in such a concrete way. And it exists beneath the surface. And this metaphor exists to help teachers identify that the fact that most people in America, they struggle to identify these aspects of culture. And in the cultural trainings that teachers do already and the racial equity trains that they do in education, which are very, very common, I'll get into it a little bit. It's common for teachers to get a lot of guilt about this aspect of them not knowing about student culture and them not knowing about family culture from different backgrounds. The beautiful thing about learning about Islam for them is when you teach about the religion, it gives you some concrete things that are psychological and mental and emotional and exist beneath the surface, but they're concrete so you can actually point to them and, and teachers can feel them better and, and see them exist and they're not just guessing. I have a question, and, and Michael. Uh, uh, so when it comes to these... I don't know if this is similar to like these diversity educational programs in some corporations, but do the schools assign these training programs to the teachers or Very good. do the teachers have the responsibility to seek out training programs or workshops by reaching out to the Muslim community, for example, and saying, look, I want to learn more. Because obviously these teachers, as you pointed out, they'll have a self-interest in... Uh, Professional interest. Know, uh, the, 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 yeah, in terms of their career growth, uh, you know, they have a self-interest in, in uh, becoming more in tune and becoming more knowledgeable about, you know, different cultures. But who will assign those training programs to them? Because at the end of the day, they're going to look for some sort of certificate at the end of the day, right? They're not just going to go good. to the message and no one's ever heard, no one knows that they went to the masjid, but you know, they could say, Absolutely. well, at least I personally understand Muslims better. Yeah. So we also want to make sure that the training programs that they're getting um, mm -hmm. are, are beneficial. 
Absolutely. Well, this is where the benefit of my, this is why I put my program together, which, which we'll get into. So, um, you know, to jump ahead a little bit, as far as that question goes, actually, I'll just show on this other rubric, like another part. Okay. Um, you know, they, they have a whole section on cultural competence. The whole rubric itself for this specific district is actually called culturally relevant teacher development and evalu evaluation rubric. They actually put this term cultural being culturally relevant in the title of the rubric itself. And you see here in another part in the, the distinguished column, teacher examines the presence and role of whiteness, which this is comes from the racial equity mm. priority that's been given in education, and is able to demonstrate fluency in their own culture and race and that of at least one other in the classroom. So again, the emphasis on culture. Now, as far as teacher trains that are done, teacher trains can come to teachers in a variety of different ways. Certainly their job, their, their the school they work for is going to provide a lot of that. And the district is going to provide a lot of that in different ways, either doing it in themselves internally or, or funding them going to things that are external that the district has approved of. Uh, this is from um, the professional requirements for getting relicensed as a teacher in the state of Minnesota from the Minnesota State Department of Education. And again, across states, these tend to look very similar. Mm. So in it's standard, you know, specifically in the state of Minnesota, it's some framework like this across all states. To get relicensed as a teacher every five years, you have to do 125 hours of professional development. And a certain amount of each of those, a certain amount, you have to do a certain amount of hours in certain categories that the Department of Education defines. The first category that the Minnesota Department of Education delineates for that is cultural competency training. You have to do um, a, a, for a teacher in the state of Minnesota, they have to do at least eight hours of cultural competency training within five years in order to become relicensed. In the subcategories under that, the state of Minnesota now actually explicitly delineates religious diversity as one of those areas that teachers should study. And they actually didn't do that a few years ago. I would like to think that the proliferation of my program in the state of Minnesota, because the state of Minnesota is where I've had the most people do it. My program is fairly well known in, in, in the Twin Cities area now in Minnesota. I'd like to think that had something to do with them adding that. So, you know, when, when teachers do it, again, some professional development will be pro, uh, provided by the district and school that they work for and professionals in there. There is always a process. Every district pretty much has to have a process in place where the uh, an educator can request from their department or from their administration hey, I want to take this program. It costs this much. Much will you fund it for me? And schools have to have a certain amount of funds set aside in order to facilitate the continuing education of their teachers. And generally in the United States... So that, would, that be be, a state, would that be a state requirement? Because I'm thinking about public schools and not so, you know, and maybe not in low-income areas, right? Maybe they don't... They, maybe they have a low budget and they probably mm -hmm. can't do it. Or... Like, is it a state requirement to do it's these? State, it's a state requirement. And, and okay. that type of money is usually provided by the state. And I'll tell you, um, it, it is the case low-income areas can um, struggle with funds. Hmm. But 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 that, that's actually not totally the case, especially if you're talking about an urban area. Though Those schools tend to actually not according be to strapped your, for cash. As people, according to your experience, would, <laughs> would a member of that social class or that gender class be giving the training. So if it's about gender identity or transgenderism, yeah. will they get a transgender yeah, person? If it's a systemic racism, will they get an Afri African American person? Or yes. and, if it's religions, because obviously different religions, are they really going to look 
seek out a Sikh and a Muslim and a Jew and a like, how's that work? Well, it, it's a really good question. Yeah, it is usually structured the way you are. Now, look, um, when school, first of all, when it comes to continuing education hours, the, the way it's typically structured is the it's the schools themselves that grant those continuing education hours to the professionals who work in their school or in their district. The Department of Education grants that power to the schools and the districts. So if a teacher like wants to do a program or you as a consultant wants to, to bring a program into the school, what they'll do is they'll vet it, you know, and, and as the consultant providing the training, you will, you know, go, you know, provide information on what the program all entails, relate it to the professional expectations, relate it to things in the field of research. Something that they're generally looking for, they are usually looking for it to be conducted by someone who has at least a master's degree in the field of education. That's pretty standard. So it's not always the case. That's why, like, if you go and visit a mosque to learn about religious diversity and you just talk to the imam there, but they don't have professional qualifications in education, that's not really going to be something that you can use for continuing education hours. You get what I'm saying? That, that, that's something that exists with that. You know, the way these things are done, again, like, like schools and educators, they, they will do what is pushed for. Do you understand what I'm saying? So the, the people who go in and, and say, hey, you should do this, and especially families, they will be responsive to. You know, that, that is what is what typically gets done. So, I mean, you know, all these other categories, there's already pre plenty of predefined programs that educators do, certainly for, for LGBT education and racial equity. And with racial equity, I'll go over some specific ones that have been done. There, there, there's all kinds of programs that have been done. But how did those get to the schools? It's because those people pushed for them to be done. You know, they 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 just re they just reached out directly and made the sales pitch for it to be done. That, that that's basically how it is. Now, as far as religious diversity, again, I would like the idea of religious diversity and having to do that with trains. That's on the increase in public education, and I honestly think the presence of Muslim children in the public school systems is a big reason why it is on the increase. So that maybe has not been done so much in uh, so much in the past. However. The Jewish community has had a really high influence over in public education, you know, really since World War II. And anyone who has done uh, public schooling in America, they, they you learned a lot about World War II. They, you know, the Diary of Anne uh, Frank, uh, the novel Night by Eli Wiesel, you know, th th those two books. Um, there's another book called Counting the Stars about a girl uh, trying to escape the Holocaust. You know, these are all books about the Holocaust. Th those books are staples of American um, public school curriculum. Why? It's because the Jewish community pushed for them to be in. Mm. And, and I, I've known of very large public school districts that I've talked to that, that they have they have annual trainings done in synagogues. So 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 it's not something it's not something strange for, for a religious community to do that or that type of thing. Now, getting to to racial equity, because because because, you know, as Muslims, you know, there's almost this automatic association of LGBT and this stuff in the public schools. And, you know, it, it is there. It, it is on the increase. Um, it, it has been around a long time, too. Actually, there there was stuff with it going back to the 90s. It's not something that's as new as people think. But 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 racial equity trainings are way more pervasive than that by by, by far and away. And the focus on racial equity trains, especially over the last 15 years, I'd say, has been really, really huge, especially in urban schools, but really even in, in first, second, and third ring suburban schools as well. 
and particularly a program called uh, Courageous Conversations About Race by an educational consultant named Glenn Singleton. Now, this book that people see on the screen here, and this gentleman, Glenn Singleton, I'm actually surprised that he's not more known about in the society. He has a consultancy, an educational consultancy um, group in, in the state of California called Pacific Education Group. And actually, his, his main training program is called Beyond Diversity. And, and, you know, the name of that training program, it draws on that earlier metaphor that I was talking about with culture being like an iceberg. Like, like you know, there, there's been this movement to push back against, um, you know, tokenism in diversity or, or super just or superficiality in, in, in diversity. And really, schools are still struggling to, to get past that, I would say. But, but people actually, they, they really don't know the extent to which um, the training program Beyond Diversity done by the Education uh, Consultancy Group, Pacific Education Group, all authored by this man, Glenn Singleton, who wrote this book, it was published in 2005, called Courageous Conversations About Race. People don't understand how pervasive this specific program and the consultancy of this group has been in public education. And, you know, even with, um, you know, the, the, the killing of George Floyd and, and, and all the stuff about race that has gone on in society in general, since then, and things that you are, you know, people are seeing it now in companies and major corporations, that type of stuff. You see in all of those talks, all kinds of, of jargon and concepts, you know, and other terminology that that is directly from Glenn Singleton's teaching. And Glenn Singleton himself, he's actually moved on to corporate America. So, so he's consulted with and people working under him, they consulted with the majority of the public education system, especially in urban areas, but also suburban areas as well. And, and now he consults with Amazon. He consults with, with Microsoft and, and Bill Gates and Jeff Bezos. So, so, so the work that was done by African-American academics and, you know, in these racial equity trends in the education system, you've seen it impact the society more, more broadly. And, you know, if you grew up in the United States in, in the 90s and even the early 2000s, People thought we were living in like a post-racial uh, type world where, you know, we weren't going to talk about race ever again because it's like, well, we've gotten over racism now. You know, it's just we left all that behind in the in the 1960s, this type of stuff. And, you know, a lot of people think it, it is the case like the election of Barack Obama kind of changed that. It did. But it, it was really the, the racial equity movement within education and African-American academics, you know, really saying to the education system, like kind of like, no, the, the work isn't done yet because there's still all kinds of problems between our kids interacting with white teachers, again, that exist beneath the surface that are not being addressed to. And the big theme was we need to talk about it. And that's why his, his book is entitled Courageous Conversations About Race. So, I, so I, I'm not criticizing the, this program. I have done this training. Actually, my, my first two days in as, an, as, a public as a public school employee, as a public school teacher, my first two days employed, I did this man's training. I did I did beyond diversity beyond diversity training. Uh, I attended his national conference uh, in 2015. He holds a big national conference, usually in the city of Baltimore, uh, every year. Is he a critical course, race theorist? Well, you know that that's the term. I mean, that's the thing. Like with um, I, mean, I don't I don't want to lump them all together, right? Like I don't want to lump. You know, so you know, like anyone who talks about race as a critical race theorist, like uh, right, right, right. Well, look, look, you, you know, with because this is the term that's being used in the media now and and with uh, all the distance learning that went on in um, 
the year 2000 with COVID and all that and all that type of stuff. Excuse me. You know, uh, families started to catch on more to the education that it w- is being done with kids. So, like talks about race, books focused on race, teaching kids how to talk about race and write about race. This has been going on in public schools for a long time. Yeah. Certainly since, you know, I know in the Twin Cities, 2010 what was really the year that it started to take off. That was the year that this consultancy group, they um, they partnered with St. Paul Public Schools and Minneapolis Public Schools in that year. I know in St. Paul Public Schools, they signed a contract with them over a million dollars over five years. And, and you know, again, this is this slide is from a presentation I was given here in Minnesota. What you see on the screen is a list of school districts in the, in the Twin Cities area that have contracted and done this man's training over the past 10 years. This is pretty much every district in the Twin Cities metro area. And, and you can look at and every other metro area. It's the same way. Now, now critical race theory, you know, this kind of race, race, race conscious stuff in academics, um, you know, it's pinpointed as starting in the 1980s uh, in law, in the field of law with critical race theory. I think there's actually some origins to it that go before that. Then I would say in the 90s, academics and education kind of caught onto the same concept. And I would say that this is an outpouring of that. But at the same time, like, um, you know, that term being a buzz term in the media now, and and then like, you know, with the scare tactics that can go on and the fear mongering that media is based on, it, it is the case that some of the things that are pointed to here and there could be some of the more extreme things. Because, because in my opinion, there, there, there is a lot of good that has come out of this man's training. There's quite a bit of, of good, and, and good that Muslims are in a good position to draw upon. Mm. Now, now again, as I was saying before, as Muslims, pretty much anything, especially if it has some kind of an ideological basis that we look at as Muslims, we're going to see some good and some bad in it. And, and I will show that here, but I do really want to emphasize to people the effects of, of this man's training um, being so influential in education, how it set up an opportunity for us. And, and again, the, the the concepts and jargon that that he teaches, they're, they're just they're, they're they're par for the course amongst educators nowadays. P- p- people know them, and, and we're only starting to see them trickle into the rest of society. Now, um, the main thing that th- this train does is um, it teaches it, it puts it in the professional of educate of the profession of education that in meetings. In, in planning sessions, very often as well in classes with students, you have explicit conversations about race. And that com- those conversations about race have to follow a protocol that he invented. And essentially what that protocol is, is what you're seeing on the screen. It's where you have to, everyone in the conversation has to agree, make four things they're going to agree to adhere to and six conditions that they're going to adhere to. Now, we're not going to go through all of these, but I'm going to use this to show how it, it creates this mixed thing for as a Muslim, where it can create conflicts in some places, but but it has also created opportunity for us. And, you know, first of all, with under agreements, you hear that term, speak your truth, that, that, that second person conceptualization of truth and that sort of subjective conceptualization of truth, which we hear a lot of people criticizing right now, that is rooted in this man's work. That is rooted in this book that was published in 2005 by Glenn Singleton. The per, the pervasive of that of that and that's in the society. The, you've seen people use it. You know its presence now in corporate racial equity trains all that type of stuff. It is directly from Glenn Singleton's work and from him making it so we have to be explicit that we're going to let people speak their truth, 
in these conversations about race that we're having in the school system. And we have a generation of young people who've been through this in the school system now. We have a generation of educational professionals who've been through it. It's direct. Most people have seen someone in nowadays in social media or somewhere use that term about speaking your truth. They've heard that somewhere before. This is where, where, where it originates from. And we see how over time, you know, he was taught, he was first published about this again, 2005. And we've seen how over a decade and a half, it, it's it's touched the rest of society. So, I, and again, I want to reemphasize that. It shows how if we educate the education system, we can affect their understanding about Islam and by extension, affect the society's understanding about Islam. You should be seeing that directly here. Now, in the, under the conditions, something that I always had issue with when I was in these trainings, he, he says to isolate race. Now, he has a bit of a sound theory behind that, because as he articulates it in his book, and as the consultants who run these trains articulate it, because of uh, white people's especially discomfort with talking about race and white people's lack of racial consciousness in Western society, because they set the norms so they don't have to think explicitly about race like black people and people of color do, and again, and again, because of uh, the sensitivity of race as an issue, his theory is that if at the outset of the conversation, if you don't agree that the conversation is going to be about race and only about race, it will inevitably veer off into talking about some other type of identity marker, such as gender, such as socioeconomic status, or about religion. Now, I will say for Glenn Singleton's part... He, he, he does say explicitly in his book that this doesn't mean that conversations about other identity markers, and he specifically names religion, it doesn't mean that they should not happen. And I, and I actually know from hearing him talk in person that he's a religious person, and, and he has actually criticized the absence of God in the public school system. So I, so I, don't, I don't want Muslims to get the wrong idea, because people who, who've really dug into his work— they don't come out of it with like an anti-religious sentiment or an anti-God sentiment and towards how we should look at kids of color, especially actually. That is something he off laments. He, he says back in the day when public school teachers didn't have any reservation about putting the fear of God into kids, our kids behave better. And since it's been replaced by, you know, the hip hop jargon, all this type of stuff, that's a problem. He says he, he's a gentleman who says that type of thing explicitly. And in my own trainings, the people who are most responsive to it when I offer it are the people who have done this training. So it's not that he says that um, religion shouldn't be talked about, this type of thing. But when I would be in those conversations, I would tell people, you know, as a Muslim, my position on race and my views towards race are direct, are dictated directly on what my religion tells me. So I, so I can't really talk about race without referencing my religion. And I have talked to kids who've gone to schools where they're very heavy on this type of stuff, who've been in these types of conversations, Muslim kids, who've told me that they've been in these types of things where they tried to talk about being a Muslim, and sometimes that the the, the teacher in the classroom or, or uh, you know, the diversity person in the school who's leading this type of conversation, sometimes people would take this condition in his conversations to mean, oh, you can't talk about religion because we're only talking about race. That, that So that that's... That type of suffocation has happened. But I do want to be clear, that's not because of things Glenn Singleton says, but that's kind of the way that other people can take this. Now, the thing that is really beneficial about what Glenn Singleton uh, taught people, in my opinion, and that every public, public school educator pretty much has been exposed to, is the third agreement that he puts on here. If you look at that, the third agreement 
that he would tell people is that they have to expect that they're going to experience discomfort in the conversation. Now, for me, why, why is this good for Muslims, as far as I see it? You know, it's not because we want people to be discomfort, uh, uncomfortable necessarily. But of course, you know, race is a very sensitive issue. So, I mean, this is the whole theory behind it. Like, you can't really have a conversation about race if you're not prepared beforehand that it might be uncomfortable. You know, otherwise the conversation won't happen. And black kids, they need the conversation to happen. So you have to expect that. To me, it's very much the same with religion. And actually, as the society has gotten more comfortable talking about race now, I personally would argue that religion is a more sensitive issue than race, and, and certainly in the public school system. But the benefit now, because like almost every teacher has been exposed to this training in one way or another. And by the way, I did this training my first two days in public education. I was trained in it at a charter school that I worked at. Then when I was hired by Minneapolis Public Schools, one of the largest school districts in the state that I live in. Being trained in this protocol is part of their orientation for every employee. You get you, you get what I'm saying? So it's on that type of level mm. that these type of, uh, of expectations exist. This is a great opportunity for Muslims to finally get to a place where they can access people who are willing to listen to, number one, some of the issues that Muslims have, that we have, living in Western society, with our kids assimilating to the society some of the criticisms that we have of Western society, and some of the things that just differentiate us as Muslims. It's generally the case that Muslims feel very uncomfortable to talk about those things because they know it's very, very sensitive. And most people, your average Joe in America, they are going to shy away from that conversation. Yes, because, you know, uh, uh, religion is sensitive. And certainly in America, you, you know, we, we there's polite society dictates that. Religion isn't something you really talk about or this and that. But with the training and conditioning that public school educators have had, they are actually oftentimes in a frame of mind where they're looking for this. They're, they're, they're looking to be challenged on, on their presuppositions. They're, they're looking to talk about things that are maybe sensitive or uncomfortable and that type of thing. And in my experience, Boston, I, I've again, I've trained over 2,000 educational professionals. And anyone who reads my book or does my training or looks into it knows I do not sanitize anything about the religion. I, I, I teach it. I, I let the Islamic texts speak for themselves mostly. I don't I don't water anything down. And I and I, I get positive reception, like, like almost 100 percent positive reception from from public school educators. And, and, and they feel that it, it's revealing to them and, and they appreciate it and they, and they don't want to be offensive towards kids. And they and they want to protect the kids' religious identity, because there's things there there's things within all this that you know this, this whole movement education, it's put a huge emphasis on identity, and, and teachers who they spend all day with Muslim kids, you know we're we're always so anxious about how bad the kids are and how they're doing this and that, and how Westernized they're becoming or whatever. But I will tell you, despite all of that, you have a non-Muslim educator who sees these kids in their classroom and they juxtapose them to the non-Muslim kids, they can see that our kids are more religious than the average kid. And they know that religion matters to them. And they know religion matters to their families. And no matter how the kids act, public school educators themselves especially, they will usually dismiss that type of misbehavior as just something developmental. So so again, the, the, you know, I actually can't tell you, Boston, because 
you know, the way I get educators to do my training is I just reach out directly. Like, like, like I just email schools. I just email teachers nonstop offering it to them. I can't tell you how many times I'm replied back with, I have been waiting for this training for so long now. Because many of these uh, school districts, you know, a, a lot of times, even if they don't have African-American kids, but any population of students of color, which is, you know, our immigrant populations, whether it's East African kids, South Asian kids, Arab kids, as well as Latino kids, they've usually done this training. Because when the demographic shift started to happen in the school system, it's this training and ones like it that was available for teachers to do something that dealt with teaching a non-white demographic, essentially. A lot of teachers, they, they've recognized that they're, you know, this training has something really good to offer, but they recognize there is some incongruency or there's some mismatch points with Muslim kids, but they just can't quite put their finger on it. And they know it has to do with religion. So, so, and there's other programs about teaching Latino kids. There's other programs about teaching Native American kids, all this type of stuff. Many educators are in a place where it's like, I've, I've been waiting for the one on Muslim kids to come along and they're, and they're thankful to have it brought to them. That, that is overwhelmingly the type of reception that I get to, to my trainings, both when I offer it to people and when it's done. So, so this is a really big thing. Like I can't emphasize how pervasive this specific training is done and, and how it, it's, to me, it's by far and away a net good for the Muslims because it has conditioned this professional class of people in public education to be open-minded to hearing about our differences, hearing about our differences. And, you know, there is things that we have in common with Western society, and there is value to emphasizing that. But a lot of the things that I'd say professionals and public school educators that they have learned from Muslims so far, it, it has been more of a um, ambassador-type um education, you know, like I think immigrant communities, when they first come to America, they have a high economic incentive for whatever they're, for whatever reason they're coming. You know, they want to protect their, their job status and all this type of stuff for good reasons. I'm not criticizing that. I'm honestly not criticizing that, but the, you know, and, and they have heightened reasons of why they should worry about being stigmatized. And certainly the war on terror did that to Muslims, just things like speaking with an accent can do that to people, all, all legitimate reasons, in my opinion. And, and, you know, that can create, that creates a thing where the first generation, you know, they might prioritize talking about commonalities when they interact with non-Muslims and explaining the things we have in common and just wanting to dispel stereotypes and that type of stuff. And all, all of that is perfectly fine. But as a generational transition is going on and with this trend going on in public education, the time is right for us to start talking about some of the differences and start talking about some of the lenses of critique that we have as Muslims and bringing those to people and presenting it to them in a professional manner, in a comprehensive manner, in a productive manner. And the world of professional development in education is what gives us that opportunity. Because that atmosphere, it's very different than trying to bark in the media. You know, you know media is all instance. It's all a short form as far as what actually flies. You know, it's all reactionary. So therefore, for us, it's defensive. So Muslims, we have to find ways to educate the society and educate people who won't reach the echo chambers that we're already echoing in, and also, too, who will be willing to sit down and allow themselves to be a captive audience for an extended period of time so they can be put through a defined learning continuum to learn about the religion in the proper way. Because this is the whole problem that Muslims have. And this is why, too, 
the associate the automatic association that Muslims always have with public education and LGBT, it's a bit of a problem for me personally. Like, and not that I don't think Muslims should be heard on it. And in your Muslim families who reach out to me about that, I try to help them as best I can in their schools where their kids are facing that. But it's a problem that we have with Western society where we're only educating about Islam in a reactionary way and in a defensive way in reaction to some type type of conflict. And it happens in a macro way where, you know, our neighbors start asking us our opinions about things and about the religion when uh, Israel-Palestine gets in the news for whatever reason, or, or Syria gets in the news for, or Iran gets in the news for whatever reason. So we're talking from a point of conflict. You know, maybe on a more interpersonal level, if we explain to our coworkers you know, we're not going to the Christmas party or we're not going to the happy hour or whatever. You know, these are conflictual type of things. If we're always only ever talking to those points, we're not educating people productively because to have a productive education about those things, you have to set a foundation with people. And that's where I begin with my training program is setting the foundation of what Islam is and how it operates in a person's life. And the key thing being to that, that it's a text-based religion. Because that is very different than the current Western understanding of religion. Because the religious experience that Western people have had is that essentially religion is something private and individually subjective. Because, you know, the Catholic Church is structured that way to a degree, because there, you know, the priests and the bishops and the Pope, they have actual authority to change the religion. And sometimes they do. And Protestants, they don't have the same structure. But, you know, I would say, you know, the reverend, the, the church leader, he's given a lot of authority of interpretation in, in in Protestant traditions. And then just also too, you know, the, the liberalization movements have made it so, you know, people can essentially in Western society adopt any sort of religious interpretation that they like. So, you know, what, what Western people, when these conflictual type of situations come up, the route that their minds automatically go to where they want to go to is basically like, well, can't you just change your mind about this? Can't you can't you interpret it this way? Can't you look at it that way? This type of thing. And, you know, when we have, when, when that's the societal expectation that we're operating with, especially for young people, especially for people who uh, might struggle to communicate themselves, which a lot of people do, you know, especially if they speak English as a second language. You know, when we're talking with people who are not, who haven't had the opportunity to be well-grounded in Islamic knowledge, you know, they might not know where to go with those types of conversations. And again, they might feel from that, that the societal pressure is pushing them in a way where capitulation and compromise and reinterpretation is just the, the path of least, least resistance to them. And I'm not saying that it's okay for Muslims to just give into the path of least resistance. But I am saying that those of us who, who don't want to be that way, we do have to try to make an effort to change those types of conditions for people. So, you know, when you set a foundation that Islam is a text-based religion and you teach about it through its text and, you know, you go through the Hadith of Jibril and you lay the whole foundation, then when you get to these pinpoint issues, the conversation is different because you can tell them what texts say and they understand that you have a limited capacity to compromise with that and that the subjectivity with that is limited. And framing things in that way, that is the goal of what my training program does. So that these conversations that Muslims do come up with, they can be different. And over time, if enough people get this type of education, we can change the general societal expectation of what it means to be Muslim and how you as a professional or neighbor in whatever context, how you interact with Muslims.
and what you respect and what you don't respect, all that type of thing. <clears throat> so I'm, I mean, there's, there's more things I have to show, you know, Glenn Singleton's work, um, culturally, uh, culturally and linguistically responsive teaching and learning, which is often abbreviated education as CLRTL. This is also done by an, by a guy from California, but this is very widespread too, as well. Like many schools have done this program and, and this program, it's another one. It focuses heavily on African-Americans, you know, it can be some good, but, you know, the whole thing I get into with, with my training, Blossom, that um, is important as concerning the professional incentive of teachers is that our Muslim kids, they are what academics call double schooled, meaning they have one form of schooling in the public schools that they go through Monday through Friday for those of them in public school. But your average Muslim kid in the West, they have a whole different form of schooling that they go to on the weekends in the madrasa or the duxia, Somalis would call it, or the mahad, whatever it's called, where they're learning Arabic and they're learning to read and memorize the Quran and they're listening to Islamic lectures. And, and this is a whole thing that has to be understood from the lens of pedagogy that Muslim youth go through. They have two concurrent academic conditionings going on at the same time. Sure. And you, at the, then at the same time, you have this movement that preaches culturally relevant teaching to teachers in the public education system. You know, Muslim kids give teachers, again, the chance to see such a concrete view into that because we have defined academic processes that we put our kids through, especially concerning literacy. And teaching and reading is such a high priority in American public schools especially. There is just a mountain of justification that exists within the field of education to say to public educators, public, public school educators, that if you want to teach a Muslim kid properly and you want to draw on their cultural resources, as they will say, then you're going to learn about the process by which they learn in mosques. And, and the beautiful thing about this, Bossom, is you know, Muslims might have a hard time getting their head around this, but if you actually look deep into the field of research in the field of education and the most objective research that exists, there is actually very, very strong justification for the idea that the type of learning that kids do in mosques and the methods associated with them, they're actually better than the current trends in public education. Because the current trends of public education come from the progressive strain of educational theorists and progressive here, it doesn't mean progressive necessarily as far as social values, but the progressive movement in America had proponents within the field of pedagogy in it, the most the most well-known of which was an early 20th century um, proponent named John Dewey, who had a whole library organization system that he put together and this type of thing. You know, and progressive education is based on the idea that um, learning can only happen if it's constructed by the learner. It can't be given directly to um, to the to the student from the teacher. And for a teacher to assert that it can be is actually oppressive for them to do that. That's the foundational theory that underlies progressive education. And, and, and essentially, that has just been proven completely wrong by the history of of objective research in the field of education. Now, pro progressive methods of teaching, they're still really common in public schools because kind of because they're linked with the progressive social issues. 
And the people who have an open mind and open heart towards things like racial equity and learning about diversity, they do tend to favor the progressive methods in education. But the beautiful thing about Muslim students is it actually unifies the superior traditional methods of education with the theory, with some of the theory in that the progressive spout of respecting student culture, it actually unifies those two. And it also, when that research is pointed out, it actually gives honor to the Islamic methods of teaching that we have because they've stood the test of time. And the reason that they've stood the test of time is because they're good. They're direct, they're logically sequenced, and they're incremental. Those are three big aspects to quality education. So this is the whole thing that I get into in my own training that, that, that is a huge opportunity that people need to understand. I point to this program, CLRTL, because it's an example of a program one thing that goes on with these racial equity programs that are pushed, universities tend to favor progressive methods because most people in the field of education in American universities, not all, but most of them, they're ideologically progressive. So they tend to condone and push the programs that are racial equity focused, but they tell teachers that using the progressive methods is a solution for students of color. And, and that, that is essentially disproven, and it is definitely not the case with Muslim kids because of the other academic condition that Muslim kids undergo. And it's a really hard thing that our Muslim kids are going through in schools, actually, that this clash exists. And a lot of times our Muslim kids, they are interpreted as being less intelligent than they really are because of this clash of methods and also the inability of teachers to draw on background knowledge that the kids are likely to have. And when you teach public school educators about the religion, that actually allows them to acquire a mutual body of background knowledge with Muslim students that they can then draw on in the classrooms. So, you know, the, the exciting thing that I really want people to understand is my book and my training program. What I've tried to do here is develop resources that other communities have had for families to advocate with because African-American families, you know, LGBT families, families of other groups, because there's other programs, you know, advocating for your kid in public schools and the idea of educating educators, it's something very intimidating to people. And not only that, but it's often something that people do not really have much time for. But when you have these resources available, the advocacy can become just referring the educators in your kid's school to these resources and prompting them to invest in the, the time that it takes to do this learning. And, and because of what I've so, so showed, you know, just the conditions of public education are absolutely ripe for it. And this is what I really want people to understand because it doesn't have to be so intimidating for people and it shouldn't be so intimidating for people. We want to reference people to something that is productive and something that will take them through a learning continuum. Another thing I like to show, um, this is a book that is very commonly read by educators in the United States. It's called Waking Up White by Deborah Irving, big part of the racial equity movement as well. And Deborah Irving was an educator in Massachusetts for a long time. Hearst, the, in Cambridge, Massachusetts specifically, and they went through a demographic shift, which was largely fueled by East Africans, which is a Muslim population. But she talks in the book about how, about her own um, increasing racial consciousness in education as a white woman. You know, I actually do think it's a good book for, for white women to read. Um, I was involved in a school where they had the whole staff read this. There's, that, that's been a common thing. And that's something that schools will often do. Like they'll have the whole staff read the read a book over the summer, this type of thing. She gives this anecdote in the book 
where she talks about how the elementary school she was at in Cambridge, they had a long held tradition of having a Halloween parade on Halloween going back decades. And as they had more immigrants come in from Somalia and from Ethiopia, they found these families, they wouldn't send their kid to the Halloween parade or they'd ask their kid to be opted out. And they're like, well, why? And this really upset them because, you know, the schools, they'll use this word inclusive and they always want the school to be inclusive. So to try to solve the solution, what they did, they called these parents to a meeting and they and they sat them down. They said, please explain to us, why, why don't you send your kid to the Halloween parade? And in the book, as she's recalling it, she describes a mother when asked this as saying, ah, and shaking her head and just saying to them, it's so complicated. Now, you just know this. Was, she doesn't mention it specifically, but you know this was a Muslim parent mm. that, that was going through this. And, mm. and this is the condition that Muslim parents always find it, especially when we're only reacting to these conflictual things. It is complicated to explain things. Because to really explain why we do and don't do certain things as Muslims, you have to go back to the foundations. You have to. And when you're talking about this, this pinpoint issue, you know, how do you draw people back to the foundations? We have to have resources to refer them to. And that is what engaging Muslim students in public schools is really about. Both the book and the training, you know, educators can be referred to either one. Really, a lot of times educators are more interested in the train itself because they get continuing education credits. And a lot of times the training uh, is less time consuming than reading the book because the book is fairly thorough. But if they're willing to put into the time, how many pages as well? Three hundred and seventy. So, so, so it's very. It, look, and I will say, part of why I put the book together was, you know, because I was doing the trains for years before putting the book together. But within the book, you know, everything we want our kids and to have reinforced upon our kids, as far as how they're nurtured as human beings. There is secular world research justification for it, 100%. And I go through that, I incite that very, very thoroughly in the book. You know, that, that's part of why I put together. You know, it also explains the religion very, very thoroughly through Islamic texts. I prioritize doing that because that is a whole question too. And, you know, it's something that I would say the Western mind is somewhat conditioned to do, but a way that they always try to kind of you know, something Westerners can do that doesn't really work for us is they'll always make things individually subjective. You'd be like, well, what do you, what do you say? What do you think? You know, you know, we have to explain to them. It's not really for me to say what Islam is or this person or that person. It's for the Prophet Muhammad to Islam to say what Islam is. It's for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala through the Quran to say what Islam is. And that's what speaks for it. You know, and again, you know, you, yes, in an everyday conversation, you'll feel weird, weird and strange to say that to someone. But if you have them as a captive audience and you explain it, in a productive, comprehensive way, then that, that can be done. And you relate it to the real world context of which they experience our kids. So, you know, just some points on the book, um, things that differentiate it, because sometimes people say to me, well, my school, you know, our educators say to me, oh, we had someone from the community come and talk to us, this type of thing. And just some points about it. the book's not focused on, on, on co-opting and, and it doesn't have that stress on commonalities. It does teach educators how to reinforce what we want for our kids in a secular type fashion in the atmosphere of public schools, but it doesn't focus on just commonalities. It gets to the things that distinguish us, and it doesn't focus on the victimhood either, because this is something that's going on and that I found amongst the Muslims who are in public education a lot. Sometimes they've been, they'll, you know, they tend to wait until they're asked to maybe present something. And when they are, it's usually in the context of, hey, we're studying racism and sexism. 
We also want to look at Islamophobia. Can you give us a presentation on Islamophobia? So there has been education done like that for educators. This is not focused on that. It's not focused on that because there's been enough of that already done. And it can be, there can be purposes for that, but it can be disempowering to only talk from that angle all the time. You know, the whole purpose of the book, it just sets an agenda for if you are a Muslim, a religiously practicing Muslim, and you want your, your child's religious practice and identity protected when they go to a public school, this is what a public school would do. And this is what a public school educator would do. And it's all related to all the fine detail of everything that is entailed within a public school, an environment I know very, very well. You know, again, having people either read a book or do a professional training, it's so valuable because it creates a captive audience. And we have to realize this is something that we are struggling to get from the non-Muslims. Okay, again, the debates on social media, it's reactionary and it's defensive. Okay, you know, we open up the mosque, ask people to come in, very, very few people come. This is our opportunity to get this, get a captive audience with the society to really explain Islam and what it means to be Muslim thoroughly. I explain it teaches how Islam functions differently. And that's just a key thing that people have to understand that when you're, you're interacting with non-Muslims and trying to explain who you are as a Muslim, you have to draw them back to the fact that the religion is text-based because it differentiates from the what standard Western religious experience. You know, I, I, I devote a good amount of time to talking about the five rulings of Islamic jurisprudence from haram to halal and encouraged and discouraged and Mubah, and talk about how this affects a Muslim psychology, and it is also the basis for Muslim cultural practices. And the thing about it is, you know, for, you know, forget like LGBT stuff that Muslims are so concerned about. A lot of times there's common activities and practices done in public schools that actually have our kids doing things like committing shirk, that mm -hmm. that that people, you know, the 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 educator, the non-Muslim educator doesn't realize what they're doing. And they needed to explain to them, and the severity of it, they needed to explain to them, and all this type of thing. From the level of interpersonal interaction up to the curriculum level, up to managing the social interaction with kids. There, there's all different types of things like that. And also, too, you know, I teach in the book tactically, because I'm an instructional coach, how you turn these points of conflict into an area of, into a resource to increase the student's engagement in academics. And to increase social cohesion among students, it goes, it, you know, like it goes through every belief in the hadith, every practice and belief in the hadith of uh, Jibril and many subsidiary ones in detail. Hmm. You know, also, too, through that, it starts to get the educator into the non Muslim educator introduced to the fact that Islam gives Muslims a certain perspective and certain critical lenses on any social issue that you can imagine or any type of global issue that you can imagine. And that for them to learn about this and to learn more about this and to set students up in the proper way is actually in a way to increase the diversity of perspective within their classroom. And most public school teachers, they are looking for that. You know, we might think of the public education system as being very ideologically driven. And there's some people, there's some forces in it that are for sure but, but you're honestly your average public school educator. They value ideological diversity and they're looking for functional, comprehensive, productive ways to bring that into their classrooms. You know, and look, the program has deep uh, professional account credibility because of the amount of research put into it. The amount of, you know, I've been developing this program essentially. I mean, it, for me, it's the culmination of my entire academic career. And I began studying Muslims in academia in the year 2005 in the field of education, the year 2013. I've been doing these trains 
since the year 2016. So my my making the Muslim uh, community aware of this, it, it, this is this has been a long project. I, you know, I did this isn't something I just pulled out yesterday. And people can look at my website, abrahameducation.com. I've had over 150 school districts and organizations across the country send educators to this training. And I don't have issues with schools approving it for for continuing education credit for educators. And I myself, I um, I have the prerequisite qualifications in education that institutions are typically looking for in the designer of a program. Um, it gives, you know, it also, it gives resources and books that can be used in the public school curriculum that are appropriate for the public school that authentically represent practicing Muslims. And these are not the mainstream niche kind of books that some major publishers are putting out right now. But actually, in our community, we have had authors who've written good books that feature Muslims for a long time, but they're not generally distributed by major uh, public by major publishers. And we have to point those out to the educators and all the learning about religious practice that they do in the program before that, it gives the educator the background knowledge to teach about those things better. And and it becomes a very rich resource for educators to use, to teach about cultural diversity in their classroom as their professional is constantly telling them to do. You know, just some things, uh, people in America, I know that this might, this whole thing might be more relevant to people in America than, than people, people internationally. However, it is a resource that can be utilized for anyone who has a context where their child is being educated by a non-Muslim. That is certainly relevant in Europe and Canada. Europe and Canada, especially Canada, they're very much touched by these same trends that I'm talking about. Certainly in international schools in the Muslim world, there's a lot of non-Muslim teachers in there. These are absolutely resources that can be used because the primary focus on it is at the level of student-teacher interaction and how our kids are interacted with. Because that's the experience that they're having the most in schools. That's what it's prim- that's what's primarily focused on. And I just say people and say to Muslim families, don't wait for permission for someone to ask you to present or to advocate. You can reach out to your child's educator proactively. You have a right to do that. Certainly in the United States, they are essentially mandated by law to listen to you and to involve you in the child's education. But they will involve the people who are proactive about it. And we have to get out of always being reactive to our education with people. And we have to find strategic ways, again, that we can get people into a captive audience to listen. And this is the way to do it. <clears throat> you know, I, I just say to people, just direct written communication is the best starting point if you want to reach out to your kid's school. Like People respond to email and education very much so, you know, and... and Written communication takes the nerves out of things. It allows you to, um, you know, draft something. If someone needs help with that, they can reach out to me at abrahameducation.com. And I'll end it there, brother. You know, if you want to um, talk, you know, I think I talked enough. I'm more than happy to. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk about all this. Great, great. I mean, Barakal Afikum for that presentation, Akhi Michael, you know, for all the very important work uh, that you're doing. Um, You know, what are the most common challenges um, Muslim students are facing in public schools? And, you know, are there any easy solutions for them? The, the most common issue for Muslim uh, kids is that they have to develop kind of a dual personality complex to really get by in Western society. That's actually not hard for young people to do. Young people, especially adolescents, they have like very flexible minds and they can switch from being one person in one context 
and another person in a different context, but it gets harder as they get older. But th that is the hardest thing. Our Muslim kids are constantly being told in certain spheres of their life that Islam is so important. Being Muslim is the most important thing to you, you know, in the masjid and at home and all this type of stuff. But they don't see Muslim adults actually externalizing themselves as Muslims enough, and they don't see Muslim adults really making an effort and being strategic about how they educate the non-Muslims in the kid's life about Islam. So then when the kids are in these atmospheres, it's like, well, what does Islam really mean? And then they start existing in a mental mode where they, they almost don't allow that to enter to some degree. And then they develop, they will develop a social mode of being amongst themselves where Islam essentially has a very, very limited part of it. So, so you know, our Muslim kids, I mean, it's hard to say the most specific challenge because because they're going through a deep psychological dilemma. And, and it's at the core of hearing our young people starting to talk about mental health issues and all this type of stuff. That is at the core of it. And I've told people too, you know, we have a generation of Muslims in their 20s, early 30s now who have entirely grown up in the United States and in, in Europe, maybe even older. A lot of these um, young people, they're going to experience very bad midlife crises when, when, when they get older, when they can't do this identity switching anymore. Yeah. And, uh, and, you know, and they never fully reconcile these things. So, so I really can't emphasize it enough. Like, and this is even something I cite in my book. This is, this is phenomenal. It's actually rec recognized in case studies that look at Muslim kids in the West, the, the, this dual conundrum that they have. And, and non-Muslim academics recognize that increasing the learning about Islam amongst public school educators who teach these kids is vital for these kids to, to, to really live out who they want to be and who, and who they can be in their lives. The other thing is, too, just in Muslim culture, you know, things like discipline, things like good behavior, things like kind manners, things like any type of personality trait that has to do with success, that, that is related to your religious identity as a Muslim. So, so when our kids aren't able to exist in their religious identity in these places, the, the secular world consequences for them are very, very dramatic. And, and, and this, and, and again, public school educators, they're able to recognize this. We just need to do, do the work to start teaching people. Do you believe that sending our children to public schools, especially in the West, is okay as long as we take the correct steps to empower our children in them? Or would you highly recommend, if not urge, parents to first consider homeschooling or sending our children to private Islamic schools if they're able to, if they're able to do so? So basically, well, all, this, ask, all this advice that you're giving now to Muslim yeah. parents and, uh, you know, in terms of how to empower their kids in public schools, are you speaking to them with the presumption that they are not able to homeschool their kids and send them to private schools? Or do you well, think that I, look, it's okay, it's okay, but take these steps and it will be fine? I, I will tell you, I speak to Muslim parents with the presumption that most Muslim parents do send their kid to public school because most Muslim parents do send their kid to Muslim to, to, to public school. There are some Muslim parents who homeschool. There are some Muslim parents who send their kids to private school, but that they're just, it's a factual reality. I don't have control over it. It's a factual reality. Most Muslim parents aren't doing that for whatever reason. Usually the reasons are things that the parents see as practical. So I know parents are getting told over and over again, homeschool, send your kid to private school. I personally think that parents should try homeschooling. I personally think I, I I do think it's a reality that parents have the ability to be 
the best uh, teacher for their kid. You referenced the parent, the free parenting course that I have on my website or on my website on my YouTube channel. A lot of that course, that te- that parenting skills Muslims need course, that's based on my experience with kids as a teacher. So, so it's really good for teachers and it will teach you how to control your kid and teach your kid. So I did part of the reason I did that was, excuse me, was to be able to empower Muslim parents to have more confidence to be able to teach their kids at home. You know, you know, honestly, regardless of what the public school is, like, like I think there's benefits to homeschooling that, that, that Muslims should do. You know, you can spend more time with your kid. You control the social atmosphere of them. There is a lot of kids, too, especially if they can become good readers. They actually are prevented from accelerating as much as they could by having to be in a class with other kids uh, a lot of the time. A lot of our Muslim kids who, who excel academically, they could actually be doing better. So I don't discourage homeschooling or, or Islamic private schooling at all. I, I say go ahead and do it. But it's just a reality that most parents are not for whatever reason. That is the reality in the West. Now, you know, why would I say sh- go ahead and homeschool and Islamic private school when I have, you know, my own profession? I have an incentive in Muslim kids being in the public school system. Because it's certainly the case in America. If you homeschool your kid or you send your kid to an Islamic private school, that does not decrease your ability to advocate in the public schools, nor your societal interest in doing it. It might even increase it, actually, because when you take your kid out of that public school, the school loses money. And most places in America these days, they have some form of school competition. Either you can open enroll to different districts, you can homeschool, you have a constitutional right to homeschool in the United States, send them to private school, send them to charter school. So there is competition to have bodies in these buildings in public schools in America. And they do not want families upset with them and dissatisfied with the services that they're giving, especially families that come from a community that is more tight-knit than most communities in America. And the Muslim community is more tight-knit. As fractured as people might think of it, it is more tight-knit than most communities in America because community living is just uh, very rare in America these days. So even a Muslim family who sends their kid to a private school or they homeschool, they can still reach out to their local school districts. They can still reach out to their um, local school and offer these resources and attach to it. This is you, when you learn with, from this, you'll, you will learn why myself and other families don't send their kids to, to private school or to, to public school. But, what, you know, what, uh, yeah, yeah, please. I, I just gonna say, I don't think parents should be intimidated about trying homeschooling. You know, it'll be a learning process like anything else, but, but you, I don't think you should feel like your kid's going to be missing out on something huge if you homeschool. I mean, what advice would you offer parents who wish to have some kind of pulse check on their children in terms of how they're getting along in school, especially in terms of their spiritual well-being? Like, you know, a lot of parents are busy. They come back tired from work. They see their children, you know, um, probably for like an hour well, or so on the weekday. Um, so, you know, this is a loaded, this is a loaded question, brother, yeah, because mm-hmm. this involves skill with kids. Okay. Mm, mm. Now again, this is this is why I put together the that 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 uh course that you referenced. And it's free on my YouTube channel. Go to the playlists. Abraham Education, go to the playlists, parenting skills Muslims need. We need to have more con- if you send your kid to public school, you need to have good competence in how to talk to your kid, how to deal with your kid, and, and how to develop a relationship with them where they're going to be willing to talk to you and they're not going to be shut off from you. And many Muslim parents are struggling with this. This involves certain soft skills with kids. 
I have worked with kids nonstop for six hours a day for 13 years. So I, I know children very, very well. And I teach these skills to other teachers. So, you know, I really advise people to go to that because you have to understand how a young person's mind works. You have to understand what entails good parenting. You have to have consistency with your kids. You have to have dinner every day. You have to know when you're at the dinner table, how you talk to your kid in a way that is going to get output from them. Many parents struggle with this type of thing. So I really just uh, advise people to go to my YouTube channel and check out that course. The people who have watched it, they've benefited from it immensely. People are very, you know, I, I put that there because this is something that Muslim parents need. Because you do have to be able to check in and you have to have a relationship with the kid where they're not going to be afraid to talk to you. And that doesn't mean being more permissible with them and what in your expectations with that. Okay, we can't do that as Muslims because we have certain boundaries. But how do you have those boundaries and enforce them upon a kid in a way that still maintains a relationship of respect and comfort where the child will talk to you, but respect mean that they respect your authority as a parent as we want them to as Muslims. In the beginning of your presentation, you you alluded to how in certain states, you know, there is a big population of Muslims, and so we have higher social leverage, so to speak, to to, to influence schools. But what about Muslims living in states where the Muslim population isn't really that great, or maybe they're probably the only Muslim kid in school, or they're the, the, probably those, them and a couple of other. Those places will still do the training. They will still do it. Because the culture of education in the United States is like you have to do all you can to respect every kid. Now, for example, you can have a school where there's 350 kids and there's one kid who has autism. The whole staff will do trainings on autism for that one kid. That That is common in the culture of education. And that type of situation, it in its own way, it can lend its own justification for everyone doing it. Because, you know, if my child's not understood as an extreme minority in here, you know, he's going to have a really hard time and all, all that type of stuff. So parents and families in that situation, they, they shouldn't feel hesitant about this type of thing at all. I don't think they should. Okay. Um, just how draconian or tolerant could public schools be? So, for example, I know that in several public schools in Canada, Muslim students can excuse themselves from theater and music classes yeah. as religious exemptions. Mm -hmm. But I don't believe that same flexibility is afforded when it comes to teaching about the ethical acceptance of homosexuality and so on. So in your experience, in what ways can public schools be accommodating to Muslim concerns? And in what other ways can they be rigid in terms of drawing red lines and not tolerating any religious exemptions? That way we, so that we're well, able, better able to manage our expectations. And, you know, does it, do you think it varies by state? Without a doubt, well, it varies by state to a degree. There's without a doubt variation by not just state in the United States, but also appellate court districts. So there's, there's, you know, the United States has a court system of which the Supreme Court is on top. Underneath that, there's 13 appellate court districts, each one that involves more than one state. Laws can actually be different based on appellate court rulings that have not been ruled on by the Supreme Court. Now, there's a fundamental constitutional right in the United States established in the United States case law for a parent to direct the education and upbringing of their child. We have, and the individuals in the United States tend to have more religious rights than in other places because of the First Amendment of the Constitution. The, uh, the precise uh, degrees and severities of which a parent can exercise those and influence what is done with the public school system the entirety of that is not fully needed out in United States case law is, is the slow and is the quick answer. 
So what that means is Muslims shouldn't be afraid to try to see what they can get. And especially because the United States Supreme Court has gone through a shift in the past few years mm. where it is much more conservative than yeah. it used to be. And even based on some ruling that's already done, it is clearly in favor of parents' rights as well as religious rights. So the, this court shift going on in the United States actually really highly favors uh, parents' rights and, and religious rights especially. So it's actually the time for, for, for us to push for things. But look, I will say generally, there's certainly a culture in the United States of you don't want to offend minority groups. So there are some schools where when it comes to right-wing Christians advocating in them, they'll be kind of harsh and they'll, they'll, they, they won't mind mixing it up with them. But look, the experiences I'm having, Boston, is schools don't really want to be that way with the Muslim community. They don't want to create frictions and problems with the Muslim community. They want to respect them, you know, as a minority community, as students of color, all that type of stuff. So so my my, my the experience I've had with schools and reaching about out about some of these specific things, they've been very accommodating. And, and that's the thing, too. The school will always have a choice to be as accommodating as it wants to be as far as opting out this type of thing. You might not be able to influence whether or not this or that is taught in a classroom, but you can probably influence whether or not your kid is there. And, you know, we want to have this also angle to it, too. And this is why the train is important of introducing alternate uh, alternative perspectives from our perspective as Muslims that, you know, aren't currently introduced in the public school system, but should be. You know, many states, though, uh, give an explicit right to opt out of curriculum. Um, Minnesota, I know, does. The, the, there's others. And, you know, also, too, um, the right to know your child's curriculum. That is a federal right. That's a federal right. Any parent in the United States has a right to review their child's curriculum. And most states explicitly stipulate that if they object to something, they can have either have the kid withdrawn or have alternative instruction done that they don't object to. And even state that don't say that explicitly in their state laws, you know, I, the cult, from what I've seen, the culture of, of, of the courts in the United States right now is, is that, that the right to have that, have opt out of things you object to, that exists in the federal law. Okay. So, 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 you know, like it's hard to say with precision. But certainly parents in the United States, um, they shouldn't be afraid to, to to push back on whatever they want to push back on and communicate. You know, of course, as Muslims, we want our communication to be productive, well-mannered, all that type of stuff. OK, and what we see the LGBT community doing, as well as the Christian right doing, where, you know, they might go to school boards and show up and rah-rah and all that type of stuff. I don't recommend Muslims to do that. OK, we want to be as well-mannered as possible. Okay, we want we want to use these things as opportunities to show people how well mannered we have, and and lots of Muslim parents and families have done that to be honest, as well as Muslim organizations. You know, it is not my sentiment at all that that public schools are gearing up to have a hostile position towards Muslims. Certainly here in the United States, I think it might be a little different in Northern Europe and maybe the UK. You know, and Canada might be somewhere in between. You know, that's that's just from feedback that I get from my social media followers. I don't know for sure. But you don't, think, States, you don't I, think, Michael, that, you know, some people on the school board could be quite passionate about their liberal views and might actually mm -hmm. feel, you know, that it's their moral duty and imperative to, you know, educate the children of ignorant Muslim parents uh, about these correct values? I, I, I think that air of pretension um I think that is much more common in Europe than it is in America. And I'm not been to Europe, but in my talks with people, that's the impression I have. 
you know, the, the prevailing sentiment of people in America is they don't want to be deemed as racist. That, that, that is honestly the prevailing sentiment of people in America. There might be some of those people, but they're a minority. Uh, there is a, it's a statistically proven thing too. I, I have an old live stream about this on my channel too. Some people don't realize your average public school educator, they might vote liberal. They tend to vote for the Democratic Party because you have a direct pocketbook interest in doing that as an educator in the United States. But they are actually more socially conservative than the average American. So, you know, we have to understand that there is a bit of a silent majority within public schools. And a lot of people are actually looking, hoping the Muslims will push back on these things because the Christians who've done it, they, the Christians who've done it, they have a soured relationship with the public education system. Like Christianity itself kind of has a sour relationship with the society, if you will. Mm -hmm. so Last question. I, 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 don't, I don't think Muslims should be afraid. I really don't. Last question, Nahi Michael, and then we'll let you go, inshallah. Um, what are the most common mistakes you'd wish to see Muslim parents would stop committing when sending or, or keeping their their children in public schools? Look, look the, the, the most common mistake that Muslim, not just Muslim parents, but Muslim adults make with young people is uh, they allow themselves to react to them operating on stress reactions. So they, they they get upset with them and they think that giving them some sort of like harsh emotional admonition is going to do something for them. You know, per, per my analysis and what I theorize is that type of thing can work to keep people in line in a society where everyone else is on the same page with you with that. But in a society that is very, very individualized where kids have other places that they can go and they have all these competing influences and certainly in America, they don't respond to that. And we keep trying to admonish the kids and talk to them in a way where we expected them just to respond to our own emotion, emotionality to, to, to the behaviors that they do. And this is not to say that we should be loose and just let things go. We should not be that way. But there is tactical things you can do on how you approach a young people that works, that maintains your sense of authority with them and maintains their respect for you and maintains their openness with you. And I will tell you, as a teacher, I, you know, I teach in the inner city, Brother Bossom. I teach four blocks away from where George Floyd was killed. My, you know, I the kids, the kids I work with, they're great kids. But some of the challenges that I, I have dealt with in my years, I'd put with kids, I, I'd put them up against anything. Some of the challenges. There, there is a way to do this. There is a way to maintain a relationship with a young person where they respect your authority and they will get into a place where they will listen to you. And they will accept your guidance as true and honest. You know, but too many parents, they, they are, and, and Muslim adults, so they're reacting to kids in such a way where what they're causing kids to do is to, to turn the other way and to hide things from them and this type of stuff. And it comes from reactive parenting is what it comes from. And just thinking that your emotional, you know, just operating like your emotional reaction is going to work. So again, Go to my parenting skills course, please. You know, maybe we can, inshallah, maybe we can do another. I'd love to do another stream, brother, about inshallah, inshallah, we'll love parent, to parenting itself. I'd be really happy to do that because this is a big thing to solve in the youth issue with Muslims. Inshallah, inshallah. You know, uh, uh, any any final words uh, before we bring? No, really, just a, just a thank you to you and to Blogging Theology for this opportunity. I really the chance to talk about uh, the things I talked about today in such an extensive manner. It's something I've been meaning to get on my own channel, just mean to do. 
So for you to open up the opportunity uh, for me, brother, and for you to to prepare for this as well as you did and look into it, I really just um, I just really want to express how grateful I am to you. Uh, for the you know for, for all the great work that you're doing and you know i pray to allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that you know he he keeps our you know our, our our children firm upon their iman and uh and uh you know upon uh, us as well you know we should also think about ourselves and not just think about uh you know the children as if they're the only ones prone to um yeah. spiritual problems so may allah you know keep all of us firm uh, upon his deen and with that, I part you, uh, Michael, and our listeners with the farewell greetings of Salaamu Alaikum Warahmatullahi Wabarakatuh.